remind you this week um, about that. Okay, so turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. And I do have that that voice throat thing again, so still. So um, I'll be drinking a lot during the sermon, but not like that kind of drinking, just water. <clears throat> and also, <clears throat> um, if I could have someone to me a huge favor, Riley, um, if you can go back to the sound booth, I have a black jacket on that chair, and it's got some cough drops in one of the pockets. If you can grab a couple of those for me, that'd be awesome. Bring them here on the stage. Please don't throw them at me. Just bring them. They might hurt. <clears throat> but does anybody else have that, that thing going around, that sickness? Does anybody else have that? I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, it needs to go away. Because it's keeping me up all night, coughing and stuff. So, okay, John chapter 20. Um, we'll get to that in just a minute. But today, we are talking about the resurrection. And... Um, it's always hard because a day like today where you have like about a 30-year kid's missing and you're like, this is a really important topic. It's the resurrection. And then yet it, uh, um, we have the precipitation and stuff that everyone stays home for. So um, the, resurrection, <clears throat> the resurrection is our topic for the day. Now, many scholars think that the resurrection, if you were to survey like uh, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, kind of the big schools that, that see themselves as the smartest schools in the nation, you're going to survey the scholars in those schools and say, how many of you think the resurrection happened literally, like physical resurrection of Jesus? You'd probably get very few that would say they really believe that it happened that way, all right? It's one of those things that, um, that the scientific minds, the intellectual minds, people don't want to believe in something like Jesus being resurrected. They think that if you believe that, that shows that you're gullible and naive and you're not very smart, you're not very intelligent. And so um, these people will often say things like that the early church, the early believers, the disciples that were with Jesus were gullible and naive. They weren't very smart. They were just fishermen, many of them. So, you know, they just kind of fabricated the story of the resurrection just to kind of validate who Jesus was. And they don't really truly believe the resurrection actually happened. In fact, they'll say things like, you guys have played the game telephone before, right? Where you say something and then you pass it on to someone else and then you see how the story changes as it moves around the circle. You've played that game before. They would really say that it's almost like a modern uh, day game of telephone <coughs> where um, the stories began to be fabricated and stories changed over time and we ended up with a story that Jesus Christ was resurrected. It's not a true story is how they might uh, frame the debate. And so this morning, I want to cover two main things. Number one is evidence for the resurrection, uh, but I also want to get into how the resurrection impacts us in a personal way as well. And so before we begin, though, I want you guys to look at your questions on your little small piece of paper there at your tables and do questions one through four at your tables. Go ahead and discuss those first four questions on the small piece of paper at your table. Okay, let's look at uh, John chapter 20. Before we get into John, though, my, the first passage I want to put on the screen, um, did, did you guys know, were you aware of this? I want to see a show of hands on this one. Were you guys aware that there were other people 
raised from the dead at the time that Jesus was resurrected. Did you guys know this? Raise your hand if you knew this. Raise your hand. Yeah, a handful of you. Um, all right, so the first, I want to show you Matthew uh, 27. Here's what Matthew says, and this will enlighten many of you because it may not be something you, that you knew about. Uh, here's what it says. It says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. This is at the time that Jesus was crucified, is referring to. And the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, meaning that they died, were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Did you guys know this was the story? So, um, so Jesus' resurrection like led to an episode of The Walking Dead, right? It's like people coming out of the graves and, and walking into the cities. I mean, just picture this. Christ is resurrected. At the same time, many people who are, who are believers also come out of the grave and, and go into town. I mean, imagine that, like your, your dead grandmother walks into the room and everyone's going, okay, what is she doing here, right? Um, so this is, here's why I think this is in the story. Listen, is that the, the resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of what's going to happen to every believer, meaning we are all going to be resurrected at some point. And it's almost like when Jesus was, was killed and resurrected, it was like, the, the ground could not be contained. It was like this, this, this foreshadowing what's to happen to every believer. If you are in Christ, if, you're, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, the same thing is going to happen for every believer. And it's, it's a passage that you might just kind of gloss over, but it's something I think is really profound um, that this happened at the same time that Jesus was also resurrected. Now, um, look at John chapter 20, verses uh, 1 to 10. And this is um, at the tomb. And uh, it says, now on the first day, verse 1, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So the resurrection happened on Sunday, which is why we meet here on Sunday as opposed to Saturday. And Mary Magdalene um, is, you may not know her story, because most of you think of her story as just this role, like the, the one who showed up at the tomb and the one who discovered Jesus was not there. Mary Magdalene, do you know her story? Anybody here know her background? What did she have issues with? Remember? Demons, all right? I'm serious. Um, she had seven demons that were cast out from her <clears throat> by Jesus or by some of the disciples. Seven demons, okay? So you can imagine this woman who lived in torment and fear and um, all kinds of physical issues because of, uh, of this, of this uh, possession, that here's someone who is just so grateful and thankful for Jesus and what he did for her. She goes to his tomb when it's still dark outside. Now, I know you, and something has to be really important for you to get up when it's still dark outside, Right? And so she thinks it's so important to go see where Jesus is buried that she gets up when it's still nighttime to go and, and check on him and possibly um, just maybe decorate. I don't know what they did back then, but do something with the, with the grave possibly. And, uh, and she realized that the, the stone's been rolled away. And just think about this. If, if you went to go visit someone, someone's grave in the graveyard and you get there 
and you see a lot of dirt dug up around the grave, like, are you going to go look in? Probably not. You're going to run away. And so um, <clears throat> this is just what she does. She sees the stone roll away. She runs away, and she goes to uh, Simon Peter, and it says, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? Who's writing this book? So John affectionately refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, as he's talking about himself, right? And uh, here's what else is interesting. Um, she assumes, what does she assume in the story at the very bottom of this, of this little passage? What does she assume? He's been stolen, right? So I want to point this out to you. This is really important. She did not, she did not assume there had been a resurrection. She did not get there and say, oh, he's gone. Oh, yeah, he did say he was going to be resurrected, right? That's not what happened. She assumed he must have been stolen because he's not there. This is really important because almost no one that we know of, like, truly understood the resurrection was going to happen. As, you, as the story unfolds, you'll see that these people just thought that very natural things had happened, like someone stole the body. That's what they thought had happened. They did not think about, oh, a resurrection happened. And, and so this will be important as we kind of move through the story. Look at verse uh, 3. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, who is John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, meaning John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <clears throat> So thank you, John, for including that in the story. That's helpful information. Verse 5, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face, face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first meaning John, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. All right. So, um, so John likes to brag on himself, obviously. I mean, here's a, I know scripture's inspired. We believe this is God's words. But it's funny to see, like, the little bit of human fingerprint on it, you know, where you're like, I know it's inspired, I know it's God's word. Not taking anything away from that, but um, it's just interesting to see how they, they lay these stories out sometimes. Um, so uh, John gets there first. He's afraid to go in. Peter catches up, and then they go in together. Um, here's something else. The, the folded cloth. There's a folded cloth where uh, Jesus' head had been lying there. If, if someone had stolen this body, would the thieves go in and steal the body and then go, let's fold this cloth real quick, Right? They're not going to do that most likely. Um, I've never seen, heard of a thief being a neat thief. Have you? I sure haven't. So um, further evidence that this body's not been stolen, right? Um, Jesus, I guess he's a neat freak. Um, he folds the cloth before he departs from the tomb. Something else it says in verse 8 is that as soon as he saw John, as, as soon as John saw this, the empty tomb, it says he saw and he believed, all right? He saw and he believed. What we don't see in these stories, we don't see people that, 
they first believed in a resurrection, the direction that it was going to happen, and then they had to make the story fit their preconceived ideas. We don't see that. We see people that they saw something and they believed as a result of what they saw. And we'll see this a little bit more as we move on. Also, uh, further indication of the story is not a made-up story is that um, the first witness, the first witness was a female. This is really important because, um, listen to this, this is really important. Uh, sorry, ladies, but if in that day um, a female's testimony was not admissible in court, that's just the way that culture was. So if a female saw a murder happen, and she's the only person that saw the murder happen, her testimony was not admissible in court because she was a female. That was the only reason. It's, it's, it's just a, a bad part of history, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so because of that, listen, because of that, if, if you're writing, if you're making up this story, it makes no sense to include as the first witness of the empty tomb a female. If this story is made up, it makes no sense to include a female as the first witness because that would not gain you credibility in that culture. So all we can assume from that is that she really did go to the tomb and she really did see an empty tomb and she really was the first eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. All right? Now look with me at, uh, um, I want to give you some, some evidences for the resurrection, some other ones as well. Um, here's the first one. Fake resurrections are easily disproved. If, if, someone, uh, if someone claims that someone else resurrected and you want to disprove that, all we got to do is just, is just go to the grave and say, here's the body, right? Here's the tomb. Here's the body. It's easily disproven. It would not be difficult to do that. The second um, evidence for the resurrection I want to give you is that doubters became believers. Skeptics and cynics became believers. Listen to this. John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So early in the life of Christ, um, even his own family did not believe he was the Messiah. And so I would say to you, I mean, just think about this. If you had a sibling who was walking around talking about the kingdom of God and claiming to be the Messiah, you would also think that they're insane, right? And you would think that until you saw otherwise. You would think that until you saw Major evidence, major proof that that was the case. This is why I think uh, one of the strongest evidences for the resurrection is someone like James, who is the brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James in your Bible. He is someone who did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah until something crazy happened. I think it was the resurrection because he had no reason to believe this until he saw something miraculous and significant like a resurrection, right? That's what it would take for someone like that to really become a believer, right? It's something that powerful, that miraculous for a doubter to become a believer. <clears throat> the third uh, reason is that many witnesses died for their faith. Think about this question. Why in the world would someone die for a lie? Why would someone uh, have their head chopped off or get crucified upside down because they, they were teaching a lie? Why would someone do that? Why would someone be willing to go and sacrifice themselves if they knew something was a fabricated story that wasn't true? Many of the disciples gave their lives for Jesus Christ, and they only 
got that boldness after the resurrection because they knew it was true. They knew it was true. Uh, Blaise Pascal, he said, um, I believe those witnesses who get their throat cut. That's a pretty, I think, profound statement, right? I mean, if someone's going to get their throat cut for something, then I, I might put more stock in what they're saying, especially if many people believe what they're saying and, and many people are dying for their faith. Um, I'm going to listen to what they say, believe what they say, pay it more attention. I mean, it's one thing if there's like one guy. I mean, everyone's going to think of some, uh, you know, cult in modern day uh, times where they're going to say, well, you know, plenty of people die for their faith that don't believe what we believe. You know, people uh, sacrifice themselves and all kinds of cults and stuff like that. That's true. But I will tell you this, that that's often like one deranged guy who's leading people astray to their death, right? And it usually involves some kind of like psychosis. And this is a situation where these people see something, they're a doubter, they're a skeptic, they see something, I think it's the resurrection, and they become a believer as a result of it, and then they, they sacrifice their own life because of it. That's a vastly different thing than one insane guy named David Koresh in Waco, Texas, leading people into an inferno while the feds are pouring into the building, right? That's a whole different deal, whole different deal. Um, I already mentioned this other uh, reason. The first eyewitnesses were women. That's a really significant thing. And then next, many people saw him after the resurrection. It was not just a room full of people. It was a crowd of people. Over 500 people saw him after the resurrection. Scripture uses the number 500 um, in one area of Scripture. And you can't make 500 people um, hallucinate the same thing, right? You can't do that. That's impossible. Uh, Another reason that Jesus' tomb was not enshrined. No one today can go to a place in the Middle East or anywhere else and say, this is where um, his body lays right now. No one can say that. And I would say this, Jesus Christ is the most important figure who ever walked on the face of the earth. And because of that, if, if, if he really died and he's still in the grave, then there would have been a place that would have been memorialized that this is the place where Jesus was laid to rest. And many people would have flocked there and gone there and, and, and paid homage to that site over and over and over. We'd know, we would know where it is today if that was the case. Like, just wrap your mind around this. Just think about this. This is really cool, I think. We, there is not one place in the world that can lay claim to having the body of Christ and say this is where his body is. Like, isn't that just really profound when you think of it? Like, there's no, look, in history, people, there's no one who's going to question that Jesus Christ walked on the earth as a man, and that he was here on the earth um, during that time. No one's going to question, even the most liberal scholars will not question that fact. But no one can produce the spot where the grave is, like where his body would still be. Isn't that profound? In fact, any famous person that you can think of, if you name them for the most part, except for uh, Bin Laden because he's in the sea, there's no grave for him. Um, but any famous person you can think of, uh, Think of, I want to ask you this question. What's the most famous grave you've ever been to? What are some famous graves you've been to? Elvis, Elvis, Kennedy, uh, who else? I can't hear you because you have to yell it to me. What's that? Kim Jong-il. Okay, sure. I'm sure you've been there. Okay, so um, we've, we've got Elvis, we've got Kennedy, um, uh, Here's the, the three graves I've been to that are the most famous people I've ever seen, that their grave. The first is, uh, is C.S. Lewis. I've seen his grave over in England. 
Um, and his middle name was Staples. Who knew? <clears throat> That's a horrible middle name, right? That's why you go by CS and not Clive or Staples, right? Um, so uh, this is his grave, and it's in Oxford, England. I've been there. I've seen it. I have been six feet away from the remains of C.S. Lewis, right? Okay, you can have my autograph afterwards. Okay. Um, okay, the next grave is, uh, this is Thomas Jefferson in Virginia. It is the home of Monticello. I've been there. I've seen his grave. I know where it is. His body is under the earth, under that um, little deal there. Next one is George Washington, Mount Vernon. Anyone seen this? Mount Vernon? Okay, you've been there. Um, so these are the top three for me that I've seen, the most famous people in the world I've seen. We, we know where they're at. We know where they're buried. If Jesus Christ had a grave that his body was placed in and he was still there, we would all know where that is. Think about that. The most important person to ever walk on the planet, how would that not be the case, right? And it's amazing to me that we get one of the biggest evidences for the resurrection is that there is no place on the planet that someone can point to and say, this is where his body is because there is no such place because he was resurrected. And then lastly, the last reason I want to give you is that uh, Christianity exploded. After the resurrection, Christianity just took off and exploded. I think because, like I said before, skeptics became believers. Cynics became martyrs for their faith because they saw something so profound and miraculous as the resurrection. So um, look at John chapter 20. Skip down to verse uh, 24. In the verses preceding verse 24, the disciples are in this locked room, and Jesus shows up. He appears miraculously to them, and he shows them his hands and his side to prove that it's him, the scars on his, uh, on his hands and his feet and his side to show that it's him. And then in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So once again, these are, these are not people, listen, these are not people who have had a preconceived idea about the resurrection and then fabricated, made up a story so that it would match their preconceived belief, right? We see in the story, we see people that say things like, I will not believe until I see evidence. I will not believe until I see the nails and, and the side where he was pierced. I will not believe until I see physical, literal evidence that I can believe and put my faith and trust in. And so Thomas was one of these people. He, he's known as Doubting Thomas for this reason. And so what I love about this story is that Jesus could have easily denied Thomas the grace of showing him those scars. He could have easily said, you know, I'm not going to show you these until you believe. I'm not going to show you my hands and my feet and my, my side until you believe and put your faith and, and believe without seeing. 
But Jesus Christ, in his grace, he extends himself to Thomas and says, you need, you, need, you, need, you need evidence? I'll give you all the evidence you need. I'll give you evidence so you can put your faith and trust in me. And he shows, in his grace, he shows Thomas his scars. And so, what is the story here? Here's the story, I think, in this, in this part of the passage. I think it's to prove the resurrection. It's to show these people were not just gullible, naive people who believed just anything. They were skeptics just like most people. You can't say today that back then they were just gullible and naive. They'd believe anything. They were skeptics just like we are today. And yet Jesus Christ showed them, he proved to them that he truly was resurrected. But I think this story even goes beyond that. I think the story of Thomas is really profound because I think that, that many people, some even in this room, you've got major doubts about the faith. You've got major doubts. You don't really understand if you even believe this or not. You, wouldn't, you may not call yourself a Christian yet, but you're just like Thomas where you feel like I've got to see something in order to believe it. I will not put my faith and trust in a, in a God that I cannot see and I can't, I, I, can't see, I can't see evidence for him. You've got major questions, major doubts, just like Thomas did. And here's what I think God does. I think he includes a story like Thomas in the Bible for people just like you because he wants to show you and say, look, there were people like that back then, people just like you today, they are in the scriptures. Thomas is a prime example. And here is someone who is a doubter who became a believer. And you can at least, Jesus may not show up in the flesh and show you his, his scars and, and on his feet and his hands and his side, but you can read the scriptures and say, if, if, if Thomas, who was a doubter and a skeptic, became a believer, then I can surely put my doubts and questions aside and put my faith and trust in the same Savior that extended himself to Thomas. I think the story is in here for people just like you that have those kinds of same doubts and questions. I want to encourage you this morning. I think if you're someone who you, you're kind of like Thomas, you feel like you're a doubter, um, I want to encourage you to wrestle with those things honestly. Don't be a person who thinks that um, the church is not a place to wrestle openly with doubt. One of the things I have a, the most difficult time with as a youth pastor is that people, especially your age, think that um, when they begin to question and have doubts, They've got to go run away from the church. I hate that, that you feel that way. Because I want to tell you that this is the best place to wrestle with those things. You will not get judgment from me and my leaders. We've been there. We are like you in this area. And if you're someone this morning that you've had questions and doubts and you feel like, I have so many questions and doubts, I'm not even sure I'm even a believer. My, my faith isn't good enough to save me. I want to Remind you this morning that, um, that your faith, the quality of your faith is not what saves you. It's who you put your faith and trust in. We are not saved by having a perfect faith, but by putting our faith in the one who is perfect. The quality of your faith is not what saves. It's the object of your faith that saves, and it's Jesus Christ who is perfect. When you put your faith and trust in him, our, our faith is always lacking. Our faith is always feeble, and yet it's the object, not the quality of your faith, that is the most important thing. So I want to show you just very quickly what the resurrection means for us personally. Um, we can get into all the evidence and, and proving that kind of stuff. That's important, I think, but I also want to talk about 
um, what it means for us in a real personal sense uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. What Paul is saying in that passage is that if Jesus Christ is dead, then so is Christianity. If Jesus Christ has not been resurrected, then so is the whole Christian faith. If he's not been raised and we're wasting our time, this whole thing is a big waste of time. If there's no resurrection, then you and I are not forgiven. We are still living dead in our sins, right? This is the importance of the resurrection. If it, if it didn't happen, then you and I are still um, unforgiven, living in our sins as dead people. But I also want to show you how this uh, resurrect, resurrection doesn't just impact us like in a theological big picture sense, but it also impacts us in a real personal way as well. Um, Many of you probably heard the story uh, of the Stryker family a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, if you haven't heard it, I'll tell it very quickly. But um, Stephanie Stryker used to go to Belton High, graduated a couple years ago, um, goes to A&M now. And um, she came here for part of her senior year. She went on a ski trip with us, our last ski trip that we did to Keystone, Colorado. She went with that, on that trip with us. Uh, many of you know her, know her, maybe even know her brothers um, and her family. And uh, I get a text message the night this happened uh, from one of our former students, Anthony Garcia, said, I don't know if you heard, but um, Stephanie's, both of her parents and her little brother were killed in a car wreck um, on, I think it was a Tuesday or Wednesday night uh, before Thanksgiving. And, um, of course, I know her, and I'm, I'm just, like, overwhelmed with grief. Like, how in the world do you cope with something that's this tragic? And so they were, her, her, her mom and dad and her two brothers were on a road in Arizona going to a um, hockey tournament in Las Vegas, and they uh, were hit head-on by someone else. Mom and dad both were killed. One of the brothers was killed. And so three-fifths of the family is just is gone. I mean, just to, I mean, you, you know, if you know Stephanie and her brother, you've, you've been grieving with them for a while now, I know. Um, but just I can't imagine the grief of losing one person or two people but three, like all at the same time. Like how do you, how do you make sense of that? And so we've just been kind of praying for her and, and her family and stuff and, um, you know, grieving alongside them as we, as they go through all this. Uh, but, you know, I began thinking about the resurrection and I don't know how you cope with this loss, this tragedy, except for the resurrection. I, I don't know where you turn, like what, there are no reasons, there's no explanation, there's no reason. You, you can't. You can't sit there and say to her, her brother, like, let me tell you why this happened. Let me give you reasons for it. Let me explain it to you. Let me give you, let me tell you the purpose of why God allowed this. You can't, you can't do that. But, but what you can do is you can look at the resurrection. You can say, there is hope. This is not the end of the story. God does things in his timing and in his own way. But it's the only way to make sense <clears throat> of suffering. It's the only way to make sense of it. And so whatever suffering that you have gone through or are currently going through, sometimes the resurrection is the only place you can turn. And when you reflect on the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected and that 
as a, as a, if you're a believer, you will be resurrected to life. That you can look at that, and that's your only hope. That's the, all you can really hang on to is just that. That's just that's it. Now it's a lot to hang on to. I'm not minimizing it, but that's everything else is stripped away. It's all you can really hang on to is that that truth, that fact. And in a way, the resurrection becomes a real personal thing, and you go, yes, it's not just some theological fact in the distant history, but it's impacting me in the here and now as I reflect on the risen Christ. And so I think God uses this kind of suffering as a way to remind us that the world as it is now is not all that there is. And these kinds of things are a reminder of that. So this morning I want to invite many of you to respond because I know that in the room this size there are people that are devoted Christians, there are people that are doubting Christians, there are people that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ yet, you're still seeking, you're still searching. There are people in the room that are, you're just bent on never putting your faith and trust in Christ. You've already decided that, and you have decided that you don't want to follow him, but for some reason you're here on a Sunday morning, I have no idea why, but I'm glad you are. And um, I want you to see Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I want to, re- I want to invite you to respond to this passage. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This passage makes it really clear that someone has to believe in the resurrection in order to be a Christian. Whenever someone asks me the question, well, how do you become a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? I always point to this passage. as I think it's a simple summary of how someone comes to faith in Christ. And what I want you to see is, is I want you to latch on to the words belief in the heart, but also confess with the mouth. Belief in the heart, confess with the mouth. Because I believe that whatever you truly believe in the heart, it's not just intellectual. It's actually a true belief a true faith, a true trust. You're putting your faith and trust in him, his finished work on the cross for your sin, the fact that he resurrected on your behalf. You're putting your faith and trust in that fact, not just saying it happened historically, but you're saying that this is true and it's being applied to my life. And I I need him as my savior. It's a real personal thing here. It's not just intellectual belief that it happened in history. And so when you believe something in your heart, it's going to come out through confession. To confess with the mouth. That means confess to other people, but also confess to God. Confess it to him. Now, I will never tell you that you've got to pray some little magic prayer to be a Christian. I think becoming a Christian is because of a result of belief and faith. But I will tell you that I still think it's great to pray the prayer and tell him, confess to him what you believe in your heart. I liken it to wedding vows. The day that I got married, my wife and I had already had an internal commitment to each other. We planned a wedding, and on that day, we said our vows. We spoke confession with the mouth, our love for each other, okay? I'm not saying your 
salvation prayer is a wedding ceremony. I'm just telling you that it's a similar picture that confess with the mouth what your heart believes. And so if I'm saying all these things to you, you've heard the whole book of John almost now, and if you've been convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is God, he is the Messiah, I truly believe that now, and I truly believe in the resurrection, then I want to invite you to respond today. At some point today, either here or in your car on the way home or go home today, and, and, and you confess that to God and cry out to him for forgiveness of your sin and put your faith and your trust in him today. If you've been questioning like Thomas, you've been doubting like Thomas did, put your faith and trust in him today. And I want to invite you to respond to that and to do it and confess it to him. Don't just, don't just say, okay, I like what Dave's saying. I'm going to agree with that. But go confess it to him and confess it to other people that you have in your life. I want to invite you to become a Christian today if you're someone that has not put your faith and trust in him. With that, go ahead and discuss your last few questions on the um, other sheet of paper at your tables. Go ahead and discuss.